0: You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.
1: The planned move of the National Maternity Hospital from Hollis Street to St Vincent's continued to dominate politics this week. A march is planned in Dublin tomorrow. Opposition politicians telling the government the state should own and control the new hospital it will be paying for. And the Sisters of Charity, who own the St Vincent's site and the hospital there, have gifted their share to a charitable trust which is offering a long lease to the state. Now, this move was first announced back in 2006. So there have been many twists and turns uh, since then and my guest now is a consultant obstetrician at both Hollow Street and St Vincent's. Professor Donald Brennan, uh, Brennan, thank you very much indeed for coming in to us uh, on Morning Ireland. Uh, 2006, this announcement was first made. Um, it's 2021 already. You're saying this hospital needs to be delivered now.
2: Yes, Anya, I think... Um Ultimately, the simple fact of the matter is that the infrastructure at the National Maternity Hospital currently is not fit for purpose. And by the time the hospital would move, which will be approximately twenty twenty eight, the hospital, the current uh, hospital at the Hollis Street, will be ninety years old. And although we our staff there work constantly to provide a world class service, they are hampered in that and. Uh, to put that in context, we still have wards in the National Maternity Hospital that house 14 women in a single ward with two uh, shared toilets. And I think our ability to pro- to provide 21st century health care is, is hampered uh, and we need a new building.
1: I think that's something everyone agrees on. Obviously, the, dif- the disagreement is about uh, what happens next. Now, in terms of, you know, the Catholic ethos and the ability to provide services that are legal in this state, you work in both hospitals uh, are you able to provide the full range of services that are legal here in Ireland and we're talking about the controversial ones like termination of pregnancy tubal ligation sterilization and also gender reassignment surgery where somebody's having a double mastectomy not because of a because that is their choice
2: absolutely um i think it has to be we have to be very clear about the fact that uh, In my time, since I've worked uh, in both hospitals for the last nearly six years now, I've never encountered any situation where I've not been able to perform uh, any procedure that is legal within the eyes of the law of the state and which is in a woman's best interest. And that includes uh, the procedures you've you've, uh, mentioned from terminations to um, tubal ligations. Uh, Gender reconfirmation surgery is performed uh, to some degree uh, within the hospital, as you described. However, the more extensive surgeries required for gender uh, confirmation are actually not performed in any hospital in the state and they're provided under the HSE tra- uh, Travel Abroad Scheme. And,
1: and is that to do with religious ethos no, or Catholic no, dogma? Why that, is
2: that? That, that is to do with a lack of clinical expertise in that area and, and uh, that is something that obviously could be built up over time.
1: Okay, so there's, there's no there's no problem in there, principle?
2: Uh, there is no problem in principle and we've and I'm speaking not only on my own behalf but on behalf of the other consultants who work in both sites that we have never been uh, hampered in any way and in fact I would say that when we've had difficult cases uh, that we've had to transfer to St Vincent's in fact uh, those cases have been facilitated rather than hampered.
1: And why is the link between Hollow Street and St Vincent's so important? Why could this hospital not be moved to another site with another hospital?
2: So... I suppose, as you said, this is going on for 15 years and whilst the arguments about uh, the um, governance and corporate structure have been going on, we as clinicians have been working over the last 15 years to build clinical frameworks uh, to, uh, to where we work together to manage many complex issues. We have many joint appointments at consultant level, uh, senior uh, nurse specialist level, and we have many people moving in and out between the hospitals to provide this care on a regular basis.
1: So the medical pathways,
2: the staffing—they're all interlinked and overlapping already. There's amazing overlap and interlink to provide uh, services for complex cases. So, for example, and what would happen if that was broken? Well, I think we will be back to square one, and we would have to spend many years trying to build that up again, and it would be quite difficult because many of we have joint appointments within anaesthesia, within cardiology, neurology, rheumatology, and obviously people like myself who work between both sites. And if that was, if we were to move somewhere else, all that. Um, all that work would have to be started from scratch again. So, you know, in many ways, the Hollow Street Vincent's network is in fact a virtual hospital that works together for the management of complex cases. And that clinical work has go- is going on and has been developed over and is quite um, well structured at this point.
1: There's an example in terms of placental medicine.
2: So yes, that's a good example where we've present. We're over the last four years, we've developed a multidisciplinary team to manage a rare condition called placenta accreta, which is a life-threatening condition, and we see about twelve to fifteen women a year um, in the National Maternity Hospital with this with this complicated pregnancy. And as a result of that team that we've developed, uh, before the team was developed, the average blood loss in those cases was of nearly five liters, and it's now down to one liter. And these women have have a much higher standard of care. And to give you an example, I've during COVID we've had situations where uh, consultants from Saint Vincent's have come to Hollister to provide that service, uh, and likewise we will go and bring okay. the patients to Hollister, to Saint Vincent's.
1: A lot of what you say is compelling, but there's also this. I and mean, when we saw the Social Democrats' motion on the state ownership, you know, passing unopposed through the door, uh, there'll be a march in Dublin tomorrow. And th- the principle is this that. The women of Ireland have had enough of charity from religious orders, and they want to own the hospital where they will be having their babies, which will be paid for by the state.
2: Yes, and I think I'm here as a clinician. I'm not a expert in property law, or in, uh, and I'm not here as a politician my single aim in all of this and my colleagues who i have to say unanimously within hall street uh, support the move to um to st vincent's is to provide a world class service for women and their babies and ultimately i can't overstate the fact that the Catholic ethos does not impact on our ability to, to um, provide that care and nor has it in any mm-hmm. way over the past, over the past uh, decade, I would say. I would agree that in the past that has been a problem, but in modern day Ireland and in all the strides we've made over the last five to ten years, uh, this, is not, this is not a problem and we don't foresee it being a problem in the future. In fact, I would mm-hmm. say that, that that argument is, is gone.
1: Except uh, that the nuns originally spoke about, you know, gifting directly to the state and now it's this charitable trust. And there is an issue, and again it may be legal and boards and governance and all of that, but there is an issue and it's been raised by a number of people. And this is to do with Vatican terms and conditions applying to the sale because they would have to approve any sale or any disposal of the land uh, by the Sisters of Charity isn't the simple solution here for the Vatican and the sisters simply to gift this to the state? Problem over and you can get your hospital.
2: Again, I think there's a huge opportunity here and if that's the solution that has to be be delivered, so be it. But, you know, we have an opportunity here to develop a hospital which will provide world-class care for women going forward. And ultimately, we are in a situation at present where we have the clinical staff to do so, but not the infrastructure. As clinicians... All we want to do is provide that care, and really, to be honest, we want to provide that in a way that it, that the um, both hospitals can work together. Uh, because ultimately, there's no point in having a hospital on the Vincent site uh, that cannot integrate properly with the existing. Uh, tertiary level general hospital on the site because co-location is the key here if you have two hospitals that are side by side but not actually working together they may as well be a mile apart Um, and because ultimately it's that co-location that provides the best type of care for women who need it the most those high-risk pregnancies
1: and that there's a principle here
2: the, the principle
1: prince. of state ownership, the principle of the hospital I being, think, being yeah. seen to be absolutely free of any kind of religious influence or control.
2: I think that's up to the, the the two boards and the politicians to work out. But as clinicians, we cannot overstate the fact that we absolutely require this hospital.
1: Thank you very much indeed for coming in to us. Professor Donald Brennan, their consultant in obstetrics and gynaecology at the National Maternity Hospital, Hollow Street and also St Vincent's Hospital. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>
3: A fifth leader in in 50 years, a third in 50 days. Geoffrey Donaldson takes over the largest party in the Stormont Assembly just weeks after the DUP chose Edwin Poots instead of him but then he defied the party to nominate the other man they both share a constituency office with, Paul Given, as First Minister, after the British government promised to legislate for the Irish language if Stormont failed to. The Lagan Valley MP then found himself all alone in the race to be the next leader. He says he wants to unite his party, unite Northern Ireland, and deal with the protocol, which places checks on goods and more coming into the north from Britain. Emma Little-Pengali, former DUP MP, and former special advisor to Arlene Foster is with us. Uh, Good morning again. Thanks for taking our call today. Um, In what way will will he be different to Edwin Poots, do you think?
4: Well, I think the DUP have clearly been through a period of instability over the course of the last number of weeks and months. Certainly when um, Edwin Poots put in his challenge, um, it seemed that the elected representatives wanted significant change. There were clearly some problems there that they felt hadn't been addressed and they wanted to increase what they believed to be the change candidate. I, uh, I think when Jeffrey Johnson ran against it on the previous occasion, they felt it was too much uh, continuity from the previous uh, leadership. However, seeing the way that this has played out over the course of the last number of weeks and months, I think many of the DUP elected representatives will now want a steady hand um, in the leadership of, of the uh, party. They will want to see things settling down, a bit of stability. You have to remember that there's an election in Northern Ireland for the Northern Ireland Assembly next spring. So, you know, it's not very long until the election campaigns really start to kick off there. So there's a very short window for the party to get things settled down, get back onto better footing. Mean, um, and I think that's what they'll want to, to see from, from Jeffrey Donaldson.
3: More than half of the DUP, or at least those who could vote, didn't want him as leader last month. How will he bring them on side now? Does he need to or just allow them to see the error of their ways?
4: Well, I think Geoffrey Donaldson has been in politics for a very long time. He has a reputation, of course, as being somebody who does reach out, um, not just to fellow unionists, but I think across much wider in terms of the political sphere. He is somebody who has been involved in negotiations and agreements um, for many, many years in Northern Ireland. He's got good relationships, I think um eh, both in london and in dublin so he's got a track record of being that type of person to be able to bring people together he is not a particularly confrontational um individual albeit that i think that's in the context where he does stand up for what he believes in and he does take a very strong position on those uh, issues but he he has a reputation of being able to reach out and i think the important thing for him would be to apply that in the first instance and indeed immediately um, to his, co- his colleagues, who I think many of them are feeling very bruised about what has happened. Um, I, I think one of the key things about the previous leadership uh, contest was that it wasn't the case that, that Jeffrey was particularly disliked by those who, who didn't vote in favour of him. I think they felt that he um, wouldn't make the same radical changes that perhaps Edwin Poots was promising. But of course, as we know now, Edwin Pooks didn't deliver on those radical changes um, quickly. or thing, basically in the time frame they'd wanted albeit in the first three weeks of his leadership. so um, you know so I, I do sense that you know he's coming into okay. this where where the elected mem- members in particular do want uh, to be led by a leader who's going to show that type of stability and who will reach out. So look, I don't think that he's coming into a, a situation where they're going to be opposed to him in that oh. regard.
3: Okay. do you think he'll use the protocol as a bargaining chip in putting himself forward or anyone else as First Minister? Is he willing to collapse Stormont?
4: Well, I think for unionist politics in Northern Ireland, I don't think the protocol is a bargaining chip. I think it is much more of a huge challenge, um, mainly because it is an issue where people on the ground across, unionists on the ground, right across every unionist political party, in Northern Ireland are very unhappy with it. Um, They're seeing the impact of the protocol, particularly in relation to consumer choice and the diversion of trade from from goods coming from Great Britain to Northern Ireland to uh, suppliers are starting to seek those goods from other markets, for example. So people are seeing the impact of the protocol on a day-to-day basis. Unionists, as I've said, across all of the unionist parties are very unhappy about that. So that is something that Jeffrey Johnson, as leader, will have to listen to I know he's got strong views on the protocol as well, but you know this is an issue which is causing significant discontent and unrest in Northern Ireland. And I think very much feeding into a sense with unionism in general, that the issues that are important to unionism are being disregarded. Okay. Um, both, I think, in terms of London, but certainly also in, in Dublin and in the European Union. And that type of instability is not good for, for the future of Northern Ireland. So it does need to be resolved. And I think it will be very much um, up there in, in, the, in the urgent issues in, in Jeffrey Donaldson's inbox when he comes in uh, as DUP leader.
3: Emma little Pankelly, former DUP MP, former special advisor to Arlene Foster. Thank you for speaking to us. <laughs>
5: The HSE has appealed for people who were socialising in Athlone on Friday the 11th of June and who think they may have been exposed to Covid-19 to attend one of its test centres. This appeal comes as the Department of Health in the Midlands investigates Covid-19 cases in the area, which may be the Delta variant. The cases are understood to be associated with socialising by the river in the Athlone area and it's understood to be the first time that the physical location of an outbreak origin has been identified by public health doctors well Dr. una Fallon is the Director of Public Health HSE Midlands Dr. Fallon, you're welcome to Morning Ireland. Good morning Mary. What can you tell us about what went down in Athlone on the 11th of June this gathering by the Shannon?
6: Um, so over this weekend um, Mary um, it became apparent that there were um, a cluster of cases, that were associated with socialising in that area um, and the key timing of that was Friday, June the 11th. Um, Now that wasn't necessarily unusual uh, except for we had been investigating another incident that was travel related and we were screening for the Delta variant in association with that other incident. So we sent a batch of tests for what we call s-gene screening and some of these then came back with um, s-gene positive results for some of the cases associated with that cluster Uh, and then that um, evidence and number of cases and number of secondary cases started to uh, grow over the weekend and it's particularly difficult for us to um, investigate or control this type of setting you know, uh, we can have, we'll say, a school cluster or outbreak or a workplace outbreak. And it's very easy to engage with the stakeholders, get a very precise list of who was exposed, identify close contacts, get them tested, track them, put controls in place. And there is a beginning, middle and end to the outbreak. Okay. But when we have something like this, which is really uh, much more vague, But very precise in terms of time, place, and person. Um, The only thing we can do really is to appeal to the community that might have been at risk and to ask them if they were connected in any way to that timing and place to or somebody who has subsequently become a case uh, to present for testing.
5: Okay and can I, can I just can I just stop you there a minute just to get sure. some clarity on on numbers and so on. Put simply are you saying that you haven't you have an outbreak of covid in Athlone and you've identified that outbreak now as being the delta variant?
6: We've identified it as being probably the Delta probably. variant. And um, how
5: many have you identified as being COVID positive so far?
6: So we we know there are fourteen primary cases associated with that uh, that time and place, okay. and then we know that each of those obviously lives in a home or a household. Many of those go to work. So we have other links to that uh, basic cluster.
5: And we spoke to Dr. Kim Roberts earlier and she was telling us that the Delta variant uh, can be more transmissible outdoors as well. But do you know at this stage, uh, from plotting uh, the evidence that you're gathering... Where this you you say you had another outbreak as well, but uh, do you believe that the, this spread of, of uh, COVID happened by the riverbanks where this group gathered, or do you think it happened travelling there in homes or at, at at house parties?
6: Yeah, I mean that's the the point really, Mary. Um, people travel to locations together people leave together and we do have information that there were some house parties on that on that evening Um, also social distancing tends to be very good at the beginning of the night and maybe not so good at the end of the night so we cannot just say that with controls in place and social distancing that there's been outdoor transmission it's all of the risks that surround that occasion and that gathering that um, lend itself to transmission but we do know that the Delta a variant is more transmissible, mm-hmm. and we do know that we have to protect the people who are either unvaccinated or who are partially vaccinated, vulnerable people. And we really want to protect our health services, not just hospitalizations and ICU, but also our community health services. So when we have outbreaks like this, they they extend. They, their tentacles stretch far and wide and we know that from wave 1, 2 and 3 and we have very few controls in place currently. So in order to protect people we would like to um, really um, control this kind of situation and get people tested. Right. And the important and, and, and thing d- is yeah. these are all young people and many of them work and we really don't want them to go to work if they have minor symptoms. They tolerate minor symptoms and then we don't want them to to go on to other super-spreading events like funerals or parties.
5: Okay, so you have 14 primary cases at the moment. Are you saying to anyone from the Athlone area who may have been at that Riverside gathering on the 11th of June, are you saying go and get a test or anyone who may have socialised with people who had been there to go and get a test?
6: That's what we're saying. That's what we're saying, Mary. And they can book their own test on the portal Or uh, we have a pop-up testing centre in Athlone in St. Aloysius School on Thursday, Friday and Saturday, the 24th, 25th and 26th. And that's available to people to just walk in and get tested.
5: So far, have you seen any increase in admissions to hospital?
6: Uh, We have not. And and those national figures will be monitored closely as uh, more... Probable Delta variant cases come to light and that is really the important metric. That is the one we do not want to see increasing.
5: Absolutely. Dr Una Fallon, Director of Public Health HSE Midlands, thank you for joining us.
0: Well, July the 19th is fast approaching the date when international travel will resume we are told but the Chief Medical Officer has said only those who are fully vaccinated should be allowed to travel. The Tornish the meanwhile says young people who will not be vaccinated for another while yet should be allowed too as long as they have negative PCR tests the worry is the Delta variant and bringing it back in increasing numbers to these shores. We are joined now by Alton Power who is Professor of Molecular Biology at Queen's University. Professor Power, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, the numbers fully vaccinated by around the middle of July could be as low as 40 percent. It's hard to say at this point. On that basis, should international travel be restricted to those only who are fully vaccinated?
7: I, My own personal feeling at the moment, Audrey, is that the there's still large swathes of the globe that are not vaccinated or still the numbers of vaccines have been distributed at a very, very low level. And this means that there's going to be the possibility of new variants. Currently, we're talking about the Delta variant. But, you know, there's going to be other variants that are going to come along. And what we've seen over the last year or so is that every new variant that we get appears to be stronger in terms of its capacity to transmit and in many cases cause increased levels of uh, hospitalizations compared to the previous uh, variants that were circulating. So if we continue to travel, and especially those that are non-vaccinated continue to travel, we continue to increase that risk of people bringing those viruses back onto the island. And at the moment for this year, I think while we're still rolling out the vaccines, I think my recommendation certainly would be that we should minimise the level of travel, international travel we have to uh, an as-needs basis.
0: But even people who are fully vaccinated, it's not known at this point if transmission is prevented. So you could be fully vaccinated, but bringing it back with you and transmitting it
7: this is the concern we know from data uh, from israel to some studies that have been done in the uk that the, the the vaccines are especially two doses of the vaccines can diminish the level of transmission substantially uh, obviously compared to people who are unvaccinated but and most importantly even against the delta variant there's a significant reduction in hospitalizations a huge reduction in hospitalizations for individuals who are fully vaccinated so that is happening there is a diminish, but it does not eliminate the risk. And this is the point at the moment: is that if we um, have, like, say, for example, seventy percent efficacy in terms of preventing transmission of the disease, there's still like the upwards and thirty percent of people who uh, will end up being, you know, getting infected and being able to transmit the virus. And we know already of individuals and individual circumstances uh, where people have been fully vaccinated. In fact, you just heard it there uh, from Brazil. Uh, people who have been vaccinated and uh, who are still ending up in hospital so we have to be very very careful and very vigilant like in the next few months to make sure that we roll out the vaccination as much as possible.
0: But if we are waiting for the risks to be fully eliminated we could be waiting a very long time because even if the Delta variant eventually gets under control there could be another variant.
7: There will undoubtedly be another variant and in fact I'm I'm just beginning to hear echoes of one coming from Africa at the moment. So again, you know, there will be other variants, there's no doubt about that. This is what these viruses do. But the big key thing, Audrey, is The vaccination levels both within Ireland, within the UK, Europe, but globally. And as we know that there are a bunch of um, countries that still haven't really any significant vaccination happening yet. Um, So this is a concern. It's a global vaccination needs to be rolled out as rapidly as possible.
0: So the CMO here, Tony Houlihan, saying only fully vaccinated people, the is saying young people, because they have been denied so much for so much longer than perhaps everybody else, they should be allowed to travel as long as they have negative PCR tests. That conflicting advice, I mean, it's not useful, is it, for the public trying to make decisions?
7: Again, from purely from a virological point of view, I would be very much inclined to agree with the CMO uh, that you know young people are, can be infected, although they don't have the same severity or the frequency of severe disease as older people do. They still can surely be infected, and they can easily transmit the virus. So, if we want to minimise the risks to all of us. Uh, then we need to take this very, very seriously, especially a variant if we end up with a variant, you know, the Delta variant is already very, very serious in terms of its capacity to be able to transmit easier than the previous variants we've had. If we get a new variant, that's even worse again. Again, we increase the risks and the restrictions that the whole of the country will suffer because of it. So this is okay. why I would be inclined to uh, follow the advice of the CMO at this stage.
0: Okay, thank you very much indeed. Olton Power, Professor of Molecular Biology at Queen's University.
1: Ireland's vaccine supply lines now look so healthy that the Tánaiste suggested using surplus AstraZeneca vaccines for younger people in the months ahead. At the moment, the vaccine, AstraZeneca that is, is not recommended for people under 50. But many over 18s face waiting till September to be vaccinated and with the Delta variant on the rise, that's a worry. On the other hand, many poorer countries are struggling to get vaccines at all while the virus is raging throughout Africa, South America and India. Peter Power is the Executive Director of UNICEF and this topic is one you're very (coughs) concerned with. Do you understand, I suppose, first of all, the argument that many people here are concerned with at the moment, which is there's the Delta variant on the increase, Mm -hmm. even warnings about a Delta plus over in England, that young people who so many of them you know they've been hit hardest by the pandemic and they're at the bottom of the queue so a mm-hmm. lot of people saying look if there's you know a chance of getting them the astra in the next couple of weeks give it to them
8: uh, good morning onya uh, what we would say is that they're they're not at the end of the queue uh, the people Uh, In countries who have one and two percent vaccination cases, they're at the very, very end of the queue. As low Uh, as one and two percent. Yes, in in many countries around the world, that is the vaccination uh, rate. And uh, what we would be saying in UNICEF is that it's uh, not just the right thing to do and the ethical thing to do. And young young Irish people understand this. It's not just uh, an act of solidarity uh, with the poorest people of the world, uh, but it's now in Ireland's national self and strategic interest to share our excess vaccines uh, with the poorest countries uh, in the world. Young young Irish people will benefit by the opening up of the world. The world will remain shut unless we expand the programme of vaccination, because this is, after all, a global pandemic. You cannot end a global pandemic uh, by vaccinating one country at a time. If this pandemic, say, was confined to Ireland and we said, well, we'll just vaccinate, Leinster counties first and we'll get to everybody else later on I think everybody knows that's self-defeating and we have to look at a much wider view and a much global view uh, global view it's not as I said just the right and ethical thing to do it's in our own self-interest to do this
1: So you're saying instead of distributing any surplus vaccines we may have over the summer months uh, to speed up the vaccination of younger people We should be sharing that. Now, tell us about COVAX, what it is and how Mm -hmm. it's not exactly matching the big promises that were made about it.
8: Well, COVAX is the global vaccine sharing programme put together by the World Health Organisation, the Global Vaccine Alliance, supported by wealthy countries, including Ireland. Ireland has made a very welcome contribution of 5 million euro. And it's designed to ensure that all countries in the world receive an equitable distribution of vaccines. This unbalance between wealthy countries and poor countries, it's just simply unfair. But it's also going to come back to bite us uh, mm-hmm. in the long run. And UNICEF plays a big part in uh, COVAX because we already uh, procure and vaccinate 2 billion uh, vaccines for the children of the world, measles and polio and so forth. And we're putting that global infrastructure a place uh, to vaccinate the very poorest people and the people in the most remote areas of the world. Unless we do this... Just vaccinating one country or a group of countries, which is what we're doing at the moment, uh, will not solve the problem in the long term and we're only storing up problems for ourselves. So we have to take, as Ireland has traditionally taken, a more open view, a more sympathetic view, a more global view, and it's the right thing to do.
1: Just to give an illustration of what you're saying about, you know, the need for a vaccine in many parts of the world, which are way, way behind uh, on rolling it out because lack, lack of supply. Uh, Mags Reardon runs a medical clinic in Malawi, and she's been telling our reporter, Joan O'Sullivan, about the level of need there.
9: Malawi is very, very poorly resourced in all areas of healthcare. There are you know less than ten ventilators available in the country, just the logistics of getting people to a hospital or to a clinic if they they become ill is always a huge challenge.
4: Does the government in Malawi have adequate supplies of vaccine at the moment?
9: No, absolutely not. Malawi has received four hundred and ninety thousand doses of vaccine. There were nineteen million people in the country. As of today, 170,000 people have been fully immunised. Transport is is very limited and it's very difficult for people to get there. So the vaccines really have to be taken to the people. And that in itself, again, presents a a huge challenge uh, because the fact that vaccines have to be kept at a certain temperature. Once opened, the vials have to be used. So there would be a higher loss in Malawi than there would be in Ireland. We are in are need of vaccines. We, there's less than
1: 300 doses now left in the country. Mags Reardon there talking about the shortage of vaccines in Malawi. And, you know, we saw at the G7, you know, big promises about a billion vaccines going to mm-hmm. COVAX and the, the developed world looking as if it was being very generous. But a lot of experts saying, actually, the need is more like 11 billion. So that wasn't quite the big promise, it
8: seemed. Absolutely. Onya, we have been advocating at the global level and before and during the G7. And yes, these commitments are welcome. And the timeline of these commitments is longer uh, than we would hope for. The need is absolutely now. And there is a huge amount of vaccines in the world at the moment. Uh, Ireland is in a great place. Yes, we all want everybody to be vaccinated uh, but the HSC have rolled out a, a incredible programme. It's highly efficient. We've got the a very uh, high percentage of take-up of the vaccine. There's high confidence uh, in Ireland. So we're in a good place now. Uh, to quote Mike Ryan, you know, uh, perfection is the enemy of the good. We can't be 100% perfect but we can be good around the world and that means sharing a percentage of our vaccines and you UNICEF, uh, our commissioned research suggests that if we and other wealthy countries shared just twenty percent of our vaccines, we would very quickly make up the shortfall that has had, had to be diverted to India because India is the largest uh, producer of vaccines in the world. So that it's not a huge uh, a huge sacrifice to make to show enormous okay. solidarity around the world.
1: So, in a line, what should Ireland do with any spare AstraZeneca vaccines this summer?
8: We, we should share a proportion of them with the developing world because it's in our interest to do do so and it's the right thing to do.
1: Peter Power, Executive Director of UNICEF Ireland. Thank you very much indeed for coming in to us.
3: Brexit. It's five years today since a referendum in the UK backed leaving the EU. Now their Brexit minister, David Frost, says those who wanted to leave didn't expect the UK's relationship with the EU to be as difficult as it is now. He's been giving evidence on Brexit to a Westminster Foreign Affairs Committee and initially claimed that nobody expected the Northern Ireland Protocol to have the impact on Great Britain-Northern Ireland trade that it did.
7: The basic problem is that the um, the chilling effect on um, goods moving uh, from Great Britain to Northern Ireland is is pretty strong. And I think until you know, we actually began implementing the protocol, nobody could, could quite know that.
3: And here's how the chair of the committee, Tom Tugentat, responded. Can I just pick up on two points you made there? One is you said that no one could have predicted the chilling effect on GB to Northern Ireland Trade. I seem to remember that the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium wrote about this at the time, warning that people who weren't versed in the protocol would probably be averse to the form filling and raising concerns about it. I also, pretty sure, I read in the reports from Britain in a Changing Europe by Anand Menon that this was predicted. And more recently, Lord Barwell has given various interviews in which he has stated that this was exactly the reason why uh, the former prime minister went for a different arrangement uh, are you sure they weren't predicted and that's Tom Tugenthal speaking uh, in London yesterday David Frost then clarified he didn't mean nobody foresaw the effects of the protocol but that they are quote quite marked our London correspondent Sean Whelan joins us so five years on Sean what have Brexiteers learnt?
10: Good question. It's not as simple as um, some of them might have thought, I guess, is the the, uh, simple answer to that question. Um, Yes, it is five years to the day uh, when the referendum was held uh, here in uh, the United Kingdom. And uh, here we are now talking about customs and borders and the implementation of agreements and how things might have been a bit better or a bit different
3: the protocol and the north sean yesterday the former leader of the dup edwin Poots, says he was promised significant changes to the protocol by the northern secretary a win he said though he didn't go into any detail did david frost shed any light for his successor jeffrey donaldson
10: no just as simple as that no he said he couldn't go into private conversations that may or may not have been had he seemed to be surprised that uh, uh, on on hearing that uh, quote Uh, read back to him uh, during the committee so uh, he wasn't uh, prepared to give any answers on that one Uh, all he would say was uh, part of his general uh, line which he gave last week at the northern ireland affairs committee and has given uh, at other committees previously and in uh, parliamentary answers in the house of lords where uh, he takes questions from time to time uh, which is that the whole protocol uh, isn't working as he had hoped it would work Uh, when he first negotiated it back in 2019 and uh, wants to see some changes but uh, saying that there will be changes uh, very soon no he hasn't gone that far he's looking for flexibilities within the way uh, the protocol is operated not uh, a ditching of the protocol. Will the UK go
3: ahead and extend the grace period on chilled meats for example on their own next week?
10: Well they have a, a written to the EU and and asked for uh, the EU's cooperation in doing that, Uh, and that seems to be a a way out of the uh, current tensions that we've seen uh, around these unilateral actions. I mean, you you may recall about a month ago, uh, Simon Coveney making a particularly strong intervention and saying unilateral Uh, actions were not the way to deal with uh, issues that have arisen under the uh, withdrawal agreement and the protocol in particular and even though the british were talking about uh, making an intervention unilaterally uh, into this area uh, after the meeting between lord frost and um, mr shevcevic here in london there seems to have been a little bit of an easing uh, in the tensions there and that perhaps as a goodwill gesture, uh, the British have uh, written to the EU and said, basically, please, can we uh, have an extension of this for three months? Uh, the EU have gone away to think about it, but I suspect they're going to come back fairly soon and uh, probably grant that extension because it suits everybody to, to grant it. There's very little to be gained uh, from coming down hard on uh, the chilled meets issue right now when we are about to face into the height of the marching season in Northern Ireland and there's a new leader in the DUP and there are other ongoing talks so I you know it's hard to see the EU turning down that request and again if the EU have been critical of the British acting unilaterally when the British try to act in a multilateral way uh, you can't really turn them down can you?
3: Sean Whelan in London, thank you.
10: An American footballer
5: has made history by becoming the first active NFL player to announce that he is gay. Carl Nassib, a defensive end for the Las Vegas Raiders, made the announcement in an Instagram video.
11: What's up, people? I'm Carl Nassib. I'm at my house here in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I just want to take a quick moment to say that I'm gay. I've been meaning to do this for a while now, but I finally feel comfortable enough to get it off my chest. Um, I really have the best life. I got the best family, friends, and job a guy could ask for. Um, I'm a pretty private person. So I hope you guys know that I'm really not doing this for attention. Um, I just think that representation and visibility are so important. Um, I actually hope that like one day videos like this and the whole coming out process are just not necessary. Um, But until then, you know, I'm gonna do my best and do my part to cultivate a culture that's accepting, that's compassionate. And I'm gonna start by donating $100,000 to the Trevor Project. They're an incredible organisation. They're the number one suicide prevention service for LGBTQ youth in America. And they're truly doing incredible things. And I'm very excited to be a part of it, to help in any way that I can. And I'm really pumped to see what the future holds.
5: Raiders player Carl Nassib. Now for more, I spoke earlier to the CBS West Coast correspondent Steve Futterman. And he told me about Carl Nassib's Instagram announcement and the reaction.
12: Well, it just doesn't happen that often. And when Carl Nassib announced on Instagram that he is gay, uh, it really became a major story here. We've never had before an active NFL player come out And acknowledge that he is gay we've had some who've after they've retired have said they were gay but never before someone who is actually playing in the NFL and it's a major story and I think many people feel a major breakthrough Nassib in his Instagram comment said he hopes that by doing this this will allow others to make similar announcements if they have a different sexual orientation
5: and is las vegas and his team the raiders uh, will they be comfortable places for him to be now i do think it
12: will be comfortable but there may be some uh, you know difficulties along the way there may be some uncomfortable awkward moments we have had athletes in other sports announce that they are gay uh, there was a basketball player an active basketball player who came out we've had many women athletes and the WNBA announced that they are lesbians. So I don't think it's that much of a shock, certainly, but to have someone actually do it, uh, it, it does change the uh, dynamics of the situation. He may have some awkward moments, but I think for the most part, you're going to have people support him. The league has already come out and said they support him, acknowledging that he is doing a courageous thing. The team, the Raiders have announced that they support him. So I think generally it will be a positive thing for him.
5: But Steve, Steve, why is the NFL such a a cold and unwelcoming place for LGBT people? Is it that
12: the macho culture... I don't know if it's a, an uncomfortable place for them, but why hasn't someone un, come out before? I, I think it, it is a bit of the, the macho culture. And that's one thing that I think uh, I think gay and lesbian and you know, the, the activists involved in this hope that will change. Obviously, the demographics would make one uh, think that there are a number of NFL players who are gay right now but just haven't come out. You would, of course, hope it will not affect his
5: career, but could it? And I'm thinking in another sphere of of Colin Kaepernick taking the knee against racial injustice and police brutality. He couldn't get signed
12: after that action. Yeah, that that was, um, I think, a much different situation. Uh, Taking that political stand really got the owners upset, got many members of the public upset. Uh, This is a situation where I think times allow... Uh, a very receptive uh, reaction to what he has done, his play on the field will determine if he if he has a, a future in the national football league that 's usually the way it goes, although in the case of uh, Kaepernick that wasn 't really the case
5: and just finally, where is his career at at the
12: moment? How successful is Karl nasib? He has had moderate success. He's not a superstar. I would say most fans of the National Football League don't even know his name prior to this. But he's, you know, he has had some success. He has had some big plays. Uh, he is a player on one of the better teams in the National Football League right now. Just being in the league, you have to have a, a certain degree of, uh, of athleticism and success. And So he is just, I think he's been in the league now for around six years. So he has had, I would say, a moderately Successful career. That was
5: Steve Futterman talking to me from the west coast of the United States a little earlier.
0: Now, I've been saying it all morning, it is the longest day of the year, the official start of summer. It's the summer solstice. So what does it all mean? We are joined now by Kevin Nolan, astronomer and lecturer in physics at TU, and by Julie Nivuel on the Dingle Druid. Julie, you have a super title. I wish I had more time to talk to you about the Dingle Druid. But listen, you got up at dawn this morning. What was it like?
13: I did. I got up at dawn this morning. It was actually very dull. Uh, but yet it was still very beautiful. The point of the solstice was at 4.32 and there was an awful lot of cloud formations and there was a lot of wind, so there was a lot of movement in the clouds but it was still a beautiful dawning because we are here at the time of celebrating the sun, our sun goddess Lou, sun god Lou and uh, Anna and I suppose at this morning with the clouds very much I was feeling into when we we're celebrating the sun, we we're celebrating the male energy, the outward energy and action. And then when we celebrate the moon, we have the feminine energy and our intuition and our inward life. So this morning, even though it was, it was very dark, you know, during the time of... Um, I suppose how we how we outwardly portray ourselves to the world at this time of the year in Solstice, you know, what our yeah. manifestations and what are what we've achieved in life and that high energy of sun, the high energy of of those poor students celebrating, and all of us who want to celebrate now, you know, the gathering of flowers and the bonfires, gathering around the bonfires. And traditionally in Ireland would be Saint John's Eve, which is the twenty third, that would be the bonfire night, but okay. also the bonfire would be the solstice.
0: Kevin, what is the science bit here? What happens on this day?
14: So basically the earth actually is on a tilt of twenty three and a half degrees, and that tilt is constant, but as we move around the sun our orientation changes. So Right here in the Northern Hemisphere, we're tilted towards the sun, so we basically get more sunlight, and uh, as we said, the sun rises very early at around half four in the morning and won't set till after nine this evening, so giving us around 16 or 17 hours. And then conversely, in winter, we're tilted away from the sun by 20 degrees, and we get our very short days and our winter solstice. So these are very important um, times, as we said, not only, you know, kind of culturally, but also even historically, for, for example, the development of agriculture, so we could understand the length of the day uh, and, and, and plot our seasons and know when to, when to sow certain things. And, and, and indeed, so ba- basically, our understanding of the Earth's. Relationship with the sun, its tilt to it, is something actually we'd cracked in Ireland even up to 5,000 years ago. And uh, as I said, all caused because we're literally lopsided as we rotate around uh, our, our, our axis as we go around the sun.
0: And Julie, for you, is it all about the land? If we understand this time of year, we understand the land. We understand the land.
13: It's one of our agricultural festivals. Uh, our last one is six weeks ago in and Our next one, which was a fertility festival, our next one in six weeks time is Lunasa, which is the start of the harvest festivals. So at this time, I suppose, it's our connection with nature and the land. and. The last couple of weeks I've come across so many fledging birds, you know, and the risk taking that they take when they make that flight from the nest. And I suppose the high energy of summer and solstice as well, it encourages us to take flight. It encourages us to take that risk. So when we gather around the bonfire, I suppose there's almost, uh, there's there's just a magic when you gather with all the people around the bonfire, the Tinnachnava, the bonfire. And we connect with our ancestors and we connect with those that went before us. And I suppose the hardships that they went through, our grandparents and great-grandparents and how they went through for us to be here, the privilege of us being here. And we connect with that and we look back. And then we celebrate. So we make daisy chains and we celebrate the flowers in St. John's Worth and Mug- Mugworth and Elder and all the blessings of the flowers that we have now. And then we're also at a very important point where the, um, the crops for
0: the next six weeks, we need good growth. We need um, a balance of rain and heat okay. and sun. Yeah, and, and, and Kevin, the sky is is so critical to all we do and I'm wondering if the Earth's rotation yeah. had not been tilted in the way it is, would we have a very different planet, very different That's seasons?
14: It. Yes, we would have had every day the same. We wouldn't have had seasons and we wouldn't have had the changes, as Julie says. So, in fact, this strange happenstance of the Earth is just tilted on its axis, has given us our seasons, has given us our solstices and in, indeed even the means to be able to understand our position uh, in the cosmos and whether you're taking that from a, from a kind of a cultural standpoint or a scientific standpoint, they really do meet at the solstices because they're the times when we understand our position in this, you know, on Earth and its relationship with the sun that basically provides all life and all energy, as Julie says, for us. Whether you know, you're saying that from a uh, cultural standpoint or even a pure scientific standpoint, they meet in relation to the solstices in, this, in the winter and, this, and the summer.
0: And just finally, Julie, how late at night, how late tonight are you expecting there to be light where you are? Um, well, last night it was very early
13: because uh, we were sp- I was supposed to go spend the night in the Blaskets last night, but it, 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 the, the weather has been really bad. There was torrential rain. So, I mean, 11, 11 o'clock, you should have some light outside there. Um, and I just want to say that Greenstad and Thaurig is the Irish for the summer solstice, which means stop. And that's the biggest thing that this is a, a three day festival every six weeks um, in, in the Celtic Wheel of the year for us to stop, pause, take it
0: all in. Well, and that's celebrate. good advice. Thank you very much, Julie Nivuel on the Dingle Druid, Kevin Nolan, astronomer and lecturer in physics at TU.
3: We're going to the United States next and to the town of Surfside, just north of Miami in Florida, where a 12 storey apartment building collapsed without warning in the middle of the night. At least 99 people are not accounted for, but it's not clear how many were in the building when it collapsed. At least one person has died. 35 people, including a two-year-old boy, have been rescued. Friends and family of the missing gathered outside the building.
5: They have no idea because they were in the South Tower. There's no news yet. yet.
14: Yes,
12: 10th floor, looking at the beach.
14: And you haven't heard anything? No. Oh, no. And you haven't seen them in the hospital or anything? No,
12: No, they sent me here.
3: Miami-Dade Police Director Freddie Ramirez asked for patience while rescuers tried to find survivors.
12: We know that the families are very upset, they're in a lot of pain, but we ask for painful patience. And I know that's a hard ask, but we have to. This is a, a tremendous task that we're, we're all involved in right now, it's very dangerous.
3: And here's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis last night speaking to reporters.
15: Uh, this is not necessarily going to be immediate in terms of what ended up happening, but I know that they are going to have engineers
10: looking at this uh, to, to try to identify what, w- what happened and what was the problematic uh, 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 occurrence. And so that, that probably you're not going to have those answers immediately, but I know that they are diligently going to be working to be able to do that. For more, we've been
3: talking to Kyla Gaylor. She's a news anchor for NBC Florida affiliate NBC2. She spoke to us earlier.
16: It was around 1.30 overnight, uh, our time, and the entire wing of a condominium apartment building uh, just north of Miami just completely collapsed, just pancaked onto the ground. Absolutely just devastating and really stunning to see. Uh, the damage is is really heartbreaking. Um, right now, we know there are still 99 people missing. One person confirmed dead. Uh, there are 102 people accounted for, though, which, of course, is good news. And that means they were either pulled from the rubble or maybe they just weren't home at the time. Uh, so right now, the search crews, you know, first and foremost, the priority is just trying to find more people trapped underneath all of that rubble.
3: Kyla, I've seen a video of the collapse and pictures of the wreckage which I heard one eyewitness describe as like watching the twin towers come down is there any Mm. idea why the building just collapsed or as you and the mayor described as pancaked
16: yeah you know that is the question that everybody wants to know right now and unfortunately I don't think it's going to be anytime soon when we get answers because of course right now the focus is on survivors that's a priority there have been you know little tidbits here and there about what may have factored into it uh the surfside mayor said the building was undergoing some roof work but that's not clear if it's a factor um and you know the investigation is just really going to have to pick up once they they get done with the search and rescue efforts
3: is it clear yet who was in the building and how many were there
16: no and that's one of the biggest problems that crews are running into right now because you know a landlord can have an estimate of how many people live in each in each room or each building but you never know who's actually home at the time of something especially in the middle of the night you know if people are on vacation maybe spending the night at a friend's house so that was part of the problem in the initial recovery efforts was just tracking down and, and making sure that they were accounting for people. So that's why so many family members and friends have been encouraged to call in. Uh, and like I said earlier, if you weren't there, at least let police know that you are accounted for, you are okay. So that is one of the issues is figuring out what's the number that they're trying to get to.
3: Most of the people who were in the building are likely to have been asleep. When this happened, what are the prospects of finding more people alive?
16: You know, there is a lot of hope and I think that's been the attitude as the day and the evening went on is just still holding on to that because it was pancake. That's what a lot of people are describing it. And that means when the building collapsed, those slabs of concrete kind of slid and moved onto one another and it creates voids in little spaces and that's good news because that means that's where somebody could be and maybe they're okay underneath there as long as rescue crews can get to them in a timely manner so so there is hope
3: and kyla what's happening there at the moment
16: right now it's just search and rescue that's that's all that's happening right now just uh they have dogs going in they have sonar devices. Uh, That's really the priority right now is just trying to find people that are still trapped underneath.
3: That's Kyle Gaylor speaking to us from outside Miami in Florida earlier.
1: Now she is and has been for decades one of the most famous pop stars in the world. But Britney Spears has been speaking before a judge in Los Angeles, California, arguing passionately against the control she says her father has over her life under a court-ordered conservatorship. Free Britney protested, gathered outside the courtroom, while inside by video link. Miss Spears argued against the controls over her life for the past 13 years and the
15: pressure that she's endured.
12: What do we want? Free Britney! When do we want it? Now!
15: I will be honest with you, I haven't been back to court in a long time because I don't think I was heard on any level when I came to court the last time. I brought four sheets of paper in my hands and wrote in length what I had been through the last four months before I came there. The people who did that to me should not be able to walk away so easily. I'll recap. I was on tour in 2018. I was forced to do. My management said if I don't do this tour, I will have to find an attorney. Ms. Bears,
9: Ms. Bears, I I hate to interrupt you, but my court reporter is taking down what you're saying. Okay. So you have to speak a little more slowly.
15: Oh, Oh, of course, yes. Okay, I apologize. Great. Okay. Um, Recap. I was on tour in 2018, I was forced to do. My management said, if I don't do this tour, I will have to find an attorney and by contract, my own management could sue me if I didn't follow through with the tour. He handed me a sheet of paper as I got off the stage in Vegas and said I had to sign it. It was very threatening and scary and with the conservatorship, I couldn't even get my own attorney. So out of fear, I went ahead and I did the tour. When I came off that tour, a new show in Las Vegas was supposed to take place. I started rehearsing early, but it was hard because I'd been doing Vegas for four years and I needed a break in between. But no, I was told this is the timeline and this is how it's gonna go.
1: And that's just a short extract from some of the audio that emerged online of Britney Spears' testimony to Judge Brenda Penny at that Los Angeles courtroom hearing into the conservatorship, uh, the court-ordered conservatorship that gives her father considerable control over her life. Suzanne Keane is the editor of RTE Entertainment Online. It was stunning after all this time to hear Britney Spears in her own words, wasn't it, Suzanne?
17: Absolutely. And I think once her fans, her Free Britney fans heard what she was saying, you know, they have um, years have said Britney is in trouble. She needs help. But Britney herself in her testimony yesterday said oh, the world. I was happy. I was happy. And everything that the Free Britney movement have, has been saying for years. She went on to tell the court, you know, that she'd been against her will she'd been hospitalised she'd been stopped from seeing her kids she wasn't even allowed you know get kitchen cabinets fixed home because it was
1: we're actually having that line isn't great Suzanne I'm wondering we might try taking a break and seeing if we can re-establish that line and come back to you after that Suzanne Keane, the editor of RTE Entertainment, is back with us and we're talking about that testimony from Britney Spears at that court hearing in California against the court ordered conservatorship of her life for the past 13 years. And they really were dramatic claims, Suzanne, um, in terms of, you know, being forced to use contraception when she wants Mm -hmm. to have another baby, made take medications she doesn't want, uh, made work on a punishing schedule that she called abusive
17: absolutely and she's, and as i was saying she said she, like she told the world she was happy but she's not she she confirmed last night she's lonely she doesn't want to live this life she wants her life back that she's worked so hard throughout her life and she feels she hasn't done anything wrong to deserve what is happening to her now so it was absolutely bombshell stuff that came out of the courthouse yesterday
1: what was her demeanor in the video link from judging from the audio
17: I, I think she, she sounded very put together. Um, it, it sounded like a prepared statement that she had put together, but she, I think it was a surprise to hear how coherent she was and how well she spoke and um, how passionate she was. And it was, you could also hear the sadness in her voice that she's living this life that she absolutely doesn't want to live, that she feels trapped and that she really, really does feel mm-hmm. alone and that there's nobody standing up for her.
1: So that's Britney Spears' side of the story. Who else will give evidence to the court?
17: Well, uh, Jamie Spears is her father, and he has been overseeing her life, or her financial affairs and her personal life, for the past 13 years. So as part of her testimony last night, Britney actually said, you know, she feels the people who've been in charge of this conservatorship should be in jail. But it really, what happens now, it'll be, according to law in the U.S., it'll be a team of medical advisors who decide whether she should be allowed free from this conservatorship. Um, Brittany is asking that she's not evaluated again medically because she feels she's given so much. She's done so much mm-hmm. therapy. She's going three, you know, three times a week to therapy. She's been evaluated. She's been on retreat. She's been in rehab and she does not want to be reevaluated again. So it's the judge now who has to decide. She has petitioned the court Brittany to be freed from it and it is the judge now who decides what happens going forward.
1: And do we know when that decision will be? Or likely um, they, to be?
17: There is another court date scheduled for July 14th but uh, the, the the talk is they it will, we'll have to wait and see at this stage. We don't know exactly whether it will be decided on that date or it will be further down the line.
1: Alright, Suzanne Keane, editor of RTE Entertainment Online. Thank you very much
0: indeed for that. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.